Here we are back again. And we're starting with a passage that's just sort of right out of the gate. Um, pretty, pretty strong. Pretty strong. If you remember where we were at um, previously, last time we were together, we were looking at this idea that God has revealed the gospel, the good news, the, the good news about what he has done that changes everything. But he's also revealed his wrath against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That was the end of chapter 1 of Romans. And in a lot of ways, even though in, for a lot of people that idea that God has wrath is not very popular and is resisted by a lot of people, even Christians, um, I, I tried to, to help you see how without that context, the gospel really doesn't make much sense. And also, unless you understand that there is a, 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 a really, um, well, there's a deep-seated reason why you long for justice and for things to be made right. And it's not just because of the way you've been socialized. The Bible says it connects to who God is and who you were made to be. And the fact is that we're, as one uh, pastor used to say, we are glorious ruins. And we live in a world that's not the way it should be. Okay? And it really, you know, it really sort of boggles my mind to think that some people don't think or, or, or have, you know, really would sort of ultimately resist the idea that God is upset by that. I know the idea that God um, has wrath is not popular, but really the love of God becomes a meaningless concept if when he looks at this world of brokenness, it doesn't bother him deeply. You wouldn't think very much about the love of someone who professed to love you if all the things that were wrong and ruptured and broken in your life didn't bother them at all. And so, you know, we, we've talked about in Christianity, the love of God and the wrath of God against everything that works against our ruin, those really go together. And if you throw out one of them, you really do irreparable damage to the other idea. And so now, tonight, we're looking at chapter 2. And it's an interesting chapter because, you know, Paul is writing at a period in time where there's very definite lines drawn between particularly two groups of people, the Jews and everybody else. And this church actually had begun as a Jewish church, but then the, the Caesar had kicked out all the Jews at one point. And so the church had largely become non-Jewish. Gentiles is the other word the Bible uses sometimes for these non-Jewish people. And then um, the Jews had been let back into Rome a few years before this letter was written. And so now you've sort of got this, these tensions between these two groups of people. And in Paul's day, it was very common and typical for the Jews to not only be happy about the way God had blessed them with many things but also to begin to look down their noses at other people. And that we have actually lots of writings outside of the Bible that give evidence to this kind of uh, ways that the Jews look down upon people who weren't Jewish. Now, the interesting thing about the end of chapter 1 of Romans is that Paul starts, sort of, basically gives voice to a lot of the sorts of things that the Jews generally 
criticize the Gentiles for. The Jews would look at the Gentiles and be like, they don't have God's law, they don't know how they're supposed to live, and so they just live in all kinds of crazy ways, doing whatever they feel like doing with no moral restraint whatsoever. Now, Paul comes in this chapter, chapter 1, and he says, listen, it's not just that they do the wrong things. What you need to understand is that ultimately, the first root issue that's going on in their lives is they have not glorified God. They have not considered God weighty. They have not considered God as important. And therefore, they have rejected him. And because of that heart rejection, it's led to a darkening of their mind and their heart. And therefore, the way they live is connected to the, to the, the will and then to the darkening that's happened to their mind, even to their understanding. It's all connected together. And the Jews that would have been following this letter would have read, along with Paul's letter here, the end of chapter 1 and been like, yeah, that's right, Paul, those crazy pagans, they do all kinds of, of, of crazy stuff, and, you know, you get them, <laughs> you know, go for it. But then in chapter 2, he, he whops them upside the head because he basically says to them, listen, you can't just criticize those pagans because you do all the same things. And not only that, you're even worse. Now this is some pretty hard medicine to swallow. And even in our day, I think it's difficult for religious people to think that the way they live is potentially just as offensive or even more so to God than all the people out there in the culture, the notorious sinners who obviously don't care about God and his ways. It's difficult for us to get, to get this. And I think what Paul said back in chapter 1 about the heart of what's going on in sin is absolutely crucial for us to understand this chapter. I think what Paul is going to explain to us here is that ultimately... Ultimately, whether you're somebody who is a religious person or whether you're somebody who doesn't really want to have religion telling you how to live, ultimately at the heart of both of those people, which includes really everybody in this room, is a stubborn, stubborn refusal to accept the truth about God and his kindness and his mercy. Well, let's see how the way Paul puts it here. In Romans chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. And, and you know, remember what he's ta- been talking about. All the, all the bad stuff that the pagans do. But then look how he starts this. He links, um, where we're starting at, links to what just came. He says, you, therefore. So he's been talking third person about those people. We all know who those people are. But now he sort of turns it on and he says, you, therefore, have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt For the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law, that means apart from having the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law, that means the Jews, the people who have the law, will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, these are non-Jews, who do not have the law, they don't have the Ten Commandments, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. All right, so this is a cheery passage. Yeah, Romans, Romans starts out real cheery, but what you got to understand is Paul is building an argument through chapters 1, 2, and 3 to basically help us understand why the gospel really is good news, why we need a rescue, why our problem is so much greater than just somebody pointing us towards the truth. I think a lot of people in our day and age think about, you know, being on a journey or on a path trying to find the truth. But, you know, Paul here says the Jews have the law. But it doesn't matter. It's not enough just to have the truth. It's not enough to, to merely find the truth. It's not. Have you obeyed the truth? Have you responded to God? Or are you stubbornly resisting him and showing contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. Now that's an important question for every one of us tonight. Now, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned in the, uh, on the Facebook, on my Facebook status somewhere today, that we're going to talk about hypocrisy tonight. Because that's what Paul is doing here. You know, everybody um, sort of in, in the first century, sort of in his Jewish audience, would love to look at those outside of their group and point fingers at them and be like, yeah, they're doing all this crazy stuff. But the thing is, Romans 2 is really a devastating critique of religious hypocrisy, which everybody in this room hates, but which really almost no one in this room sees in themselves. This is the, the dilemma. It's like, you know, the statistics about, you know, how many people think they're above average when you ask them. And it's something, what, like 80 or 90 percent of people in our country think they're above average because their whole life they've been told they can do anything if they just set their mind to it and they're really special. Um, 
the fact is, you know, 90% of the people can't be above average, but everybody thinks that they are, okay? And so it is this way. Everybody thinks that hypocrisy is a huge problem. Everybody wants to be real and authentic. They demand it from everybody, but rarely do they see hypocrisy in themselves. And how does Paul deal with this? He basically just has to call a spade a spade and say, look, look, you who show judgment on those other people out there, and who doesn't hate judgmental religious people? But he turns the thing around on them and says, look, you do the same thing. Now that's a pretty strong claim. That's a pretty bold claim. I mean, how can Paul say that? to these religious people, that they're doing the same thing that they're condemning in other people. How can he make this claim? And I think the reason he can make this claim is going to point us to a deeper understanding of what hypocrisy really is about. We think of hypocrisy as merely a disconnect between our words and our actions. But the way Paul analyzes it, it's much deeper than that. He says it goes so far as to be understood as to be a suppression of the truth that God has given. You see, what Paul is contending in this chapter, and this is a difficult thing, I think, for us to accept, but I'm going to try and show you why, why he can make this argument. He's contending that the religious people run away from Jesus just as much as the pagans. Just as much. And when I use that word pagan, I mean it in the, in, the, in the sort of the old sense. Not necessarily in a pejorative way, but in the sense that they're not Jewish. Okay? It's interesting, actually, in the, in the early centuries, the Romans called the Christians pagans because they didn't worship all the gods. You know, so, you know, depends, I guess, on who's using that language. But the way Paul's using it here, there are people who are not Jewish, who don't really have any sort of connection to the Ten Commandments. It doesn't control the way they live. And then there are these people who are looking down upon them, these religious people, the Jews. And, um, and Paul is contending that both of them, both of them are running away from Jesus. Now, this is important for us because I would, I would say that probably the number one barrier to people, especially your age, being interested in exploring Christianity is the problem of hypocrisy. And it's not just a theoretical problem. Probably every one of you can think of people that because they call themselves Christians, you really struggle with Christianity. And you're embarrassed sometimes to call yourself a Christian. And if, it's not, if you haven't known somebody personally, certainly um, you're... Um, a little gun-shy to call yourself a Christian in light of the way basically everybody in our culture, and particularly you see this in the popular culture, Christians, what it means to be a Christian is that you're arrogant and judgmental. Now, you know, when I was your age, it was the church lady, you know, skits on Saturday Night Live, and maybe some of you guys are too young to remember that, aren't you? Dana Carvey, you should look those up on, on um, YouTube sometime, the church lady, and she would sort of always, you know, sort of have this condescending judgmental attitude about everything and she wore you know he dressed up like this old woman and wore his hair in a real tight bun and was just prim and proper and had this sort of tight-lipped 
kind of scowl about everything. And for a lot of people, that's what they think of when they think about Christianity. Uh, I, I saw, again, the trailer. Anybody go see this Easy A movie? Anybody seen that one yet? Yeah? Nobody? Nobody wants to admit it? Yeah, you saw the trailer. All right, so, you know, here it's just the typical story you see time and time again, right? The girl who basically has this friend who's gay, and um, he really sort of wants to um, avoid some of the social stigma. So he talks this friend of his into pretending that they had sex so that everybody, you know, will look better upon him. And meanwhile, she has to bear the scorn of um, the Christians, you know, who, of course, are like the popular controlling people. And sort of there's, of course, the blonde, you know, cheerleader type who's also the Christian. who's like, well, we need to pray for them, but we also need to get them the heck out of here, you know, kind of thing in the trailer. And it's like, of course, there's got to be that character in any sort of drama about high school, doesn't there? There's always going to be the judgmental Christians. It's, it's such a stereotype that it's just, of course, it's going to be in there. And it's a stereotype because it's so often true in reality. It really is. Um, it's one of the serious issues that we have to deal with. Um, the biggest barrier, I think, to so many people taking the claims of Jesus seriously in our day are Christians, Christians who fail to trust in Christ's righteousness alone, and thus they're miserable, judgmental people. God wants free, loving obedience from the heart, but instead... So many people that name themselves by his name are judgmental, self-righteous critics. And that's, that's the reality. So this is a very relevant passage. Does Paul give us anything here to help us? Because the fact is, criticizing other people for a while may make you feel clean and powerful. I don't know if you understand this or not, but you know, it's a, it's a common strategy. It's sort of a way we try to kind of jury-rig our hearts and, and trick ourselves into thinking that God must be okay with us by pointing fingers all the time. Even if it's not outwardly, at least it's in our hearts. We point fingers at other people. We console ourselves. Even when, we're see, when we realize that we've not lived the way we want to live, we often console ourselves. How? At least I'm not like my roommate. At least I'm not like her. At least I'm not like him. You often have a good indication of what you really trust in by where do you go to console yourself when you're really down? Where do you go? Do you console yourself with the fact that you're not like those people? So often in churches you hear sermons about us versus them. And we would never want to be like them. Oh, we should go out to them and tell them about Jesus because they really need to know about Jesus and his grace. But what does Paul say here? He says the problem with the religious people is they're showing contempt for the riches of God's grace and kindness. It's not just those people out there. It's us in here that are suppressing the truth of God. See, here's what's interesting. Paul is actually continuing the argument. He started back in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, where he said that God's wrath is being revealed against all kinds of unrighteousness because people suppress the truth. And then he sort of did a little diversion and he sort of spelled out in great detail the way this suppression of truth uh, works itself out in the life of irreligious people. First, they reject God 
and they reject any kind of standards of how they should live except what they decide for themselves. And so they basically just decide, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to worship, and then what they live like flows out of that. And then he says, but they're not the only people that suppress the truth about God. Even people who not only have the light of nature, but who have the law of God itself can fight against it. And if you've, you know, maybe you're, this is your first time to spend uh, much, much time in the South. But something that Flannery O'Connor, the great Catholic writer, said one time, maybe, maybe you've picked up on this. She said that, that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. People in the South, and elsewhere in America, but particularly in the South, People are haunted by Christ more than they're really Christian, she said. And, and the main thing that they do is they avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. They don't want to face the fact that they need God just as much as those people out there. And therefore, to sort of prop up that whole illusion to themselves, they spend all their time criticizing and being judgmental towards others. See, the problem, the problem with putting your hope in being better than other people is it's a house of cards that's very vulnerable to being blown over. And so you have to protect it ruthlessly. If anybody, if anybody would make any kind of suggestion or intimation that you're not better than somebody else, you have to be very quick to prove them wrong. And so you have at the ready all the reasons that you're better than other people. You have to know somebody that you're better than. And of course, in our days, it doesn't even have to be people you know personally. There's all these idiot celebrities, you know, that will do well. You know, at least I'm not like that person or that person that does this or, you know, lives like this. We try to console ourselves by lifting ourselves up in our own eyes and hoping that God won't really look at us. But Paul says, and the Bible says, that God sees right through that. He sees right through that. Now, ultimately, you see, the big problem with criticizing other people is criticizing others can never grow in you a heart of love and a life of beauty and wholeness. It's inherently just about tearing down other people to take the focus off yourself. It can't melt your heart. And what God says in his word is he doesn't just want a world where he has some sort of people in his holy little club that are better than other people. He wants a world where love and beauty and justice roll down. Where it dominates the creation, the good creation that he made. And the only way, the only way to melt the heart and bring that kind of beauty and wholeness is through his kindness. You know, there are two ways to reject God. And, and I think a lot of people, maybe you've, maybe you've, wrestled with this a little bit even since you got to college often you'll get people 
who, you know, will show up at college. Maybe they were raised in a Christian family, or maybe you know friends of yours that went off to other colleges that you've, you know, you see their pictures on Facebook and you realize that they're not living the way you guys lived in high school or tried to live in high school, right? Everybody's had that experience, I think. And, and I, I remember, you know, one time have, having that experience. I'd, ha- I'd finally met a Christian at my college. I went to Berkeley College of Music. There weren't a lot of Christians up there, at least not ones that I could find. But I finally met this one guy. And then uh, after, the, after our freshman year, we both went back home and we came back. Um, I, I was moving my stuff back in in the fall. And he's, you know, playing quarters with his buddies. And he's completely wasted. And I'm like, Hmm, I think something happened this summer. Not that if you've ever gotten drunk, you can't be a Christian. But it was definitely a change from my friend, from how I'd known him uh, when we parted ways in the summer. And, I, you know, you, you just start thinking, what's, what's going on? Well, here's what goes on a lot of times. There are, two ways, there are two ways to basically reject God and reject Christ and his kindness and his ways. The first is the sort of obvious way, which is basically to say to God, I don't need you to tell me how to live. Not interested in in any sort of external standards telling me how to live. It is to reject God uh, as Lord and to say, I don't need you. I don't want you. What right do you have to tell me what to do? And, and that's, you know, in, in our day and age, that, that seems very obvious. And you talk to people about that. But then there's the more subtle way of rejecting God, which is to say, I don't really need a Savior. Not because I don't believe that God has laid down a certain way that I'm supposed to live, but because I think that I can do a pretty good job of living that way, at least better than other people I know. So you can reject God by saying, I don't need a judge, but you can also reject God by saying, I don't need a Savior because I'm doing pretty good myself. And often you'll see in the course of someone's life them go from trying to be their own savior, rejecting Jesus and his grace by keeping the laws, and after a while getting so frustrated with that, because there's no love in their heart for God, there's just this feeling of frustration with him telling them what to do. They, they often then will move into a place of saying, well, screw it. I don't want to do any of this. And they just sort of go from sort of being this nice Christian kid to just being a hellion freshman year in college. Right? I, there's a song for me that really captures this by Patty Griffin. Are you all Patty Griffin fans? I think she's one of the most profound songwriters of our day, and on her Flaming, Rec- Re- uh, Flaming Red record, she has a song about masturbation, which is always, you know, fun to have a song about. I remember the first time I told this story, it was like parents weekend, and there were a bunch of parents there, and, you know, but here's, but it's a, gr- it's a perfect example. It's this song, Wiggly Fingers. Do you know this song? It's an amazing, like she talks about, she grew up in ca- going to Catholic school, and she talks in there about how she got sent home as a little girl um, with a note to my daddy about my unspeakable behavior, that I, wouldn't, I couldn't keep my little wiggly fingers to myself. And then the chorus line comes in, who the hell is going to be your savior now? In other words, if you're trying to get God's smile by keeping the rules, what happens when you break the rules? You've lost it. Who the hell is going to be your savior? You've been proven inadequate to save yourself. But then as the song goes on, and now she's grown up, and sort of the idea of wiggly fingers changes its meaning. Now, she basically is saying, I'm sitting over here in the corner where I can stay safe and free from the danger of real intimate relationships. I'm keeping my wiggly fingers to myself, 
And now the chorus line is, who the hell says I need a savior anyhow? Do you see, the, see how the shift? In other words, sometimes when you, when you only know that God is judge and you're not convinced that he's gracious and kind, the more you try to live for him, the more frustrated you get, the more your heart grows bitter towards him. And eventually it just boils over and you say, I'm done with it. I'm sick of it. I don't need a savior. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm going to be my own God. And what Paul's saying is that heart is in irreligious people and religious people. And the real danger for the religious people is they don't see that heart in themselves. They're very quick to see all the irreligious people and how they must hate God, but they're convinced that they love God. They're convinced they love God. Why are they convinced they love God? Well, because he's given them all these special privileges and he's, you know, done certain things for them that they can point to. But what Paul says is, God has got to come to the rescue because there's no way you can change your own stubborn, bitter heart towards God. You can't do it. Even if, even if you become convinced that, wow, my heart is just as bitter towards God as these people that I point my finger at. The real issue is not just have you seen the truth, but how can you change? Because ultimately, the big problem is that you can't change your heart. And you can't change your heart by guilt. It's guilt that's making you point your fingers at everybody else. And so many Christians, so many people are raised in churches thinking the only motivation they have is to pour guilt upon themselves, to feel more guilty, hoping that it'll change the way they live. But what it will never change, what it will never change is you looking down your nose at other people. Why? Because you can't possibly let go of the thing you're trusting in unless something more solid presents itself. In other words, even if you know that the thing you're holding on to is making you miserable, you don't want to be a judgmental person unless you understand that there's a bigger and better, more believable, more beautiful way and thing to trust in. You can never let go of the thing you're trusting in. And, um, you know, this self-righteousness is so subtle. It gets into everything about us. You know, I think when I, when I first preached this sermon uh, a few years ago, I didn't have a Mac yet. So then I remember making an application about Mac righteousness. Right? I don't make that anymore because now I have a Mac. So I wouldn't want to talk about that. But, you know, I, I do love this, this book by Chuck Klosterman called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And um, I love that there's a, there's a, um, there's a great, great little section in here, and I'm going to have to obscure one of the words or I'll get in trouble with people that listen to the podcast. Um, but he says this. Now, Klosterman is a writer for Spin, uh, not a Christian guy, but I think he has some of the most profound insights about how pop culture helps us understand ourselves and the world we live in. And he says this, the most wretched people in the world are those who tell you they like every kind of music except country. People who say that are boorish and pretentious at the same time. All it means is that they've managed to figure out the most rudimentary rule of pop sociology, 
They know that hipsters gauge the coolness of others by their espoused taste and sound. And they know that hipsters hate modern country music. And they hate it because it speaks to normal people in a tangible, rational manner. Hipsters hate it because they hate Midwesterners, they hate Southerners, and they hate people with real jobs. <laughs> yes. And then there's this quote. Actually, they got this from the, he got this from the national scene. Um, this guy, David Berman of uh, the group The Silver Jews. I don't know if they're very popular anymore. Um, but he talks about this. He had just moved to Nashville, okay? And he, the Nashville scene was interviewing him. And I think they had asked him about authenticity. And he says this. One thing that cracks me up in the Nashville local music scene is this verbal battle between music row and alternative country. Alternative country, to me, is just as ridiculously empty in a different way. It's just that they're not in power. All these people singing about a life they never knew, it's really a fetishization of Depression-era country life. If authenticity is the issue, then there's something more authentic to me about Walmart country, which speaks to the real needs of the people who listen to it, way more than talking about grain whiskey stills. (laughs) I, I like that. I mean, you can even... Look down upon other people by the music that that you listen to and that they listen to. It's hilarious, you know, over the last 10 years working with students at Belmont. Like, it's almost like people have to outdo each other with the obscureness of the bands that they like. Like, I'm really waiting for somebody to say, well, you know, I'm really into this band, but you've never heard of them. They've never played any shows. They've never released any music. They've only ever had rehearsals where they let two people come. Um, But they're really awesome. You know, and maybe one day you'll get to hear them. It's almost to that point, right? And, and here's what's real, what you realize pretty soon after you get into college. Like, you can't even keep up with the high schoolers anymore. Like, everybody around me and my circle thinks that I know everything about music. I'm like, I haven't heard of any of the bands you guys like, right? But all my peers think that I'm, like, really in touch with music. And you guys think you're really in touch with music until you go talk to, like, your younger sister or younger brother. And they're, like, finding out about stuff that you've never heard of. And it's just going to keep getting worse. So be careful where you put your hope and what you think makes you really matter. Right? See, this looking down upon others is not just a religious problem, but it's particularly bad for religious people. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We want authenticity. We loathe hypocrisy. But we don't know how to get it. And even worse... We think we've achieved it. (laughs) We don't think we're nearly as inauthentic as everybody else we know. We think everybody else is a hypocrite. But we begin to suspect at times when we're honest with ourselves that maybe we're hypocrites too. Well, God comes to the rescue. But God comes to the rescue in a way that probably is not what you'd expect. Look Look at where this passage goes. Now, what's really interesting, in verse 16, the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Does that strike you as bizarre? We just talked about the last two weeks about how the gospel means good news. How could, God call, how could Paul call good news the day of judgment? Does that strike you as strange? And then you go back uh, up into the passage, 
and you say, um, you know, you, you, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment on those who do the same things. Look at verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So you, you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Where in the world is the good news in all of this? This just seems like Paul's like beating the snot out of us and trying to scare us to death. But here's what we need to understand. The first part of the good news is that God speaks straight to us. And you know what? You may think God coming to you and saying, you're worse than you think you are. Because that's basically what he's saying. You're worse than you think you are. How could that be good news? It's good news because until you really believe that, you will never quit beating your head against a brick wall trying to get God to like you. The only way that you'll really come to freedom is if you finally despair of all any ability you have to get God to like you. You'll never find peace and joy until you quit trying to get God to like you. And you'll never get there until you realize that getting God to, try, to like you by pointing out to him how much everybody else deserves his wrath actually <laughs> means that he likes you even less. Do you, you know what I'm saying? The only way to get to joy and peace is to quit trying to get God to like you. And the only way that you'll really despair of that is when you realize that the thing you're trying to do to get him to like you, pointing your nose and your fingers at other people, is actually making him hate you. And until that reality breaks in upon your life, you're going to be forever enslaved to things that just don't work. Wouldn't you like to know now that what you're living for is not going to work? I know I would. I, boy, I can talk, think of all kinds of things that I wish I knew when I was your age. And this is one of them. That, that feeling better than other people is not going to get God to like me. It's not going to put peace in my heart. It's not going to give me any joy. Do you know how crazy? I mean, I have little kids, and it's really remarkable to me that they think that if somebody else experiences joy, that, that they can't experience joy. In other words, they don't just care that, that you know, that they don't, they, they, how do I put this? It's not enough for them just to get blessings. They think that it's good if other people don't get blessings. And I try to explain to them, look, it doesn't really help you if your brother doesn't get this blessing. Like, why do you care? If he gets invited to a birthday party and you don't get to go, like, be happy for him. There's no way in the world to explain that to an eight-year-old. But you know what? It's really hard to explain that to me, too. Because I keep thinking that it's this big, big competition. Like, the only people that can get joy are the ones who win. And let me tell you, so much of my sorrow and brokenness comes from the fact that I think that. And one of, the, one of the best messages that I can preach to myself is, that doesn't work. And come to repentance. And God in his kindness is proclaiming that message to you tonight. 
Tonight he's saying, be free of your self-righteousness. And until you let go of the thing that you think makes you more acceptable to God than somebody else, you can never find joy and peace. This is the message that changed the face of, uh, of England and America about 250, 300 years ago. There's a man named George Whitfield who went around preaching. In a lot of ways, he was probably the first American celebrity, the first person that basically everybody in America knew who he was and knew his name. And he basically preached only a few sermons over and over and over again. And we have notes from some of them. And in one of them, he preaches this really counterintuitive message. But listen to this. Listen to this. He says, before you can speak peace to your own hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life and the sins of your nature, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. The poor sinner, when awakened to his actual condition, usually flies to his duties and his performances to hide himself from God. In other words, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I realize I'm a sinner, but I try to console myself by saying, yeah, but I've been doing this and I've tried my best to do this and at least I'm not like that person. And, and, and so he often goes from himself to God and goes and tries to patch up a righteousness of his own. He says, I will be mighty good now. I'll reform. I'll do all I can. And then certainly Jesus will have mercy on me. But Whitfield goes on. He says, but before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that all your duties... All your righteousness put all together are so far from recommending you to God, are so far from being any motive and inducement, inducement sorry, to God to have mercy on your poor soul that he will see them to be filthy rags, that God hates them and cannot but hate them. He, he says this, he goes, I do not know what you think, but I can say that I cannot pray except I sin. I can't preach to you or any others except I sin. I can do nothing without sin. My repentance needs to be repented of, and my tears need to be washed in the precious blood of their dear Savior. Our best duties are as splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only repent of your sin, but also of your righteousness. Christians, you see, listen, everybody is sorry for doing the wrong things. But what, means, what makes a Christian and what should make a Christian different from everybody else is that a Christian is somebody who repents of their good deeds. And I told you about this guy, David Dixon, who um, lived back in the 17th century. And he was on his deathbed and he was asked how it was with his soul. And he said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds and I've thrown them together in a heap and I fled from both of them to Christ. And in him I have peace. Listen, you may think that what separates you from Jesus is your sin. But what Paul is saying here is that for many of you who've grown up in church, the thing that keeps you from Jesus is your rightness. It's the good stuff about you. Because it's not good enough. And the greatest danger is to trust that you're better than other people and find one day that it's still not enough. And the good news begins by speaking truthfully to you and to me tonight to say, don't just flee from your sin, 
flee from your righteousness to Jesus. It's the only way you can have peace. See, the real problem with religious hypocrites is they hate God. Can you admit that to God? Can you admit that to God? Let me tell you something so good. The kindness and mercy of God is designed to lead you to repentance. Listen, you could, you could listen to everything I had to say tonight and walk out of here completely missing the point if you don't hear chapter 2, verse 4. The last thing, the worst thing you could do is to walk out of here and feel like, wow, I really am a hypocrite. I need to quit being a hypocrite. I need to quit being a hypocrite. I feel so bad about being a hypocrite. I need to quit it. No, listen. What you need to know is God's kindness comes to hypocrites. And it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Why is that? Because if all you hear tonight is I'm a hypocrite, then what you're going to do when you walk out of here is either you're going to quit thinking about it be like Woody Allen, who said one time, I believe in the power of distraction. There's a lot of people that believe more in the power of distraction to quiet their heart than they believe in the gospel. If you don't believe in the kindness of God, then all you're going to do when your sin is exposed is you're going to hide again. And you may hide in a different place. Maybe now your self-righteousness has been exposed, so now you're going to try and hide in doing good deeds like serving the poor or being kind to your roommate, or it's something. But to truly repent, you have to believe that God is a safe place. Because repentance means not just changing the way you live, it means turning away from yourself, throwing yourself on his mercy, and knowing that he's kind towards those who throw themselves on his mercy. And so what you need to know as you go tonight, and even as we pray, and we're going to sing this last song, is that Jesus, Jesus is the expression of the kindness of God. See, here's the great news for us guys tonight, that the kindness of God is not just a vague attribute. It says in, in the book of Titus that when the kindness, when the kindness of God, here's how it says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, in Jesus, the kindness of God appeared. And Jesus is the one who says, Come unto me, all you are heavy and weary laden, especially those who are weary of their self-righteousness and don't know how to break free. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And the rest will begin with saying, Quit trying to get me to like you. That just pisses me off more. Do you believe that God thinks that way? That's what it says. That's what he's saying. The people that are looking down upon other people, the people who think they're better, are actually worse. I know that seems crazy. But it's because they're showing contempt for his mercies. Whenever we, whenever we look down upon other people, what we're really saying to God is, Jesus didn't need to come and die. I'm good enough. I mean, you've got to let some people into heaven. And I'm certainly at the top of the heap. Do you know how offensive that must be to God who sent his only begotten son 
to die a torturous death, for you to say, you know, God, that was really a waste of time. You didn't need to do that. Because I, w- I was getting it anyway. I mean, you had to let somebody. You, surely you grade on a curve, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. But the kindness of God has appeared in Jesus who lived and died in the place of sinners. And that's good news. Let's pray.